song's been around for many, many years. And I don't know about you, but I never tire of it. It's a powerful song to sing to God. And I pray that we have, a, have had a great morning this morning worshiping God and preparing our hearts for what we're going to talk about here just for a little bit this morning. Uh, I'm excited to be with you. As uh, Bobby said, happy Merry December. I can't believe December is already here, right? And, and don't we say that? Don't we say, where did it go? Where did the year go? Can you believe it's already gone? I mean, it just seems like yesterday we were singing Christmas songs, uh, and next week we will sing Christmas songs, so there you go. It just seems like yesterday we were exchanging gifts, uh, and some of you went to uh, ugly sweater parties. I, I saw a commercial yesterday uh, um, that, what's that new portal or whatever where you can see each other? I mean, that's commonplace now. We, what, how many, 10 years ago we said that was never going to happen? Now it happens all the time. And what the, the, girl, the, the dad and the mom came out in their sweaters, and she said, are you guys going to an ugly sweater uh, party? And they're like, What? And that was just their sweaters. And then she burnt the cookies. They said, are you going to a burning cookies party? So they got back at her. There you go. That's a loving mom and dad and daughter right there. So amen to that. Are we exchange gifts or Christmas, uh, kids' Christmas shows and and different things like that and all that. And and, and we do. We We ask ourselves, where did the year go? Where did it go? It's hard to imagine that we're almost in 2019 and then... Right after that, 2020. That's amazing. Next year is going to be uh, packed with a lot of cool stuff. We have the Jubilee here. Uh, that's going to be exciting. Uh, Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, all coming here. Of course, we'll have Animate again. And, and uh, that was a, a knockdown, bang out in 2017, 2019. It's going to be a great time. Uh, and we're looking forward to that as well. And, and many, many other things. But let's finish out the year strong. Let's finish out 2018 Uh, 2018 strong. We've got one more month, December, and that's it. Where did it go? And and we ask that question, where did it go? But do you ever ask yourselves, what did I do this year? What did I do? And maybe even more to the point, if we profess to be disciples of Jesus, what did I do for God and his kingdom this year? And maybe there are some of you out there who ask yourselves that question. But then, do we take it even further by answering that question? Because it's one thing to ask the question. It's another to answer it completely. And that's really the nitty-gritty of what we call ourselves when we call ourselves disciples. It's what we do for God. It's not for the salvation, of course. It's because we have salvation. It's not that at all. But, but... Lord knows, because I have salvation, I'm grateful to do for God in his kingdom. I'm grateful to serve in God in his kingdom. I'm grateful that we have many in here who love to serve in God in his kingdom. So this lesson that I'm going to do for us this morning is going to talk just a little bit about that. I want to take a few minutes here to look back into uh, history and take a look at the Christmas story. And no, it's not the Red Rider BB gun Christmas story at all. It's the original Christmas story. And this time of year, isn't that what we do? We look at the Christmas story. And this time of year, we ask, where did it go? And so the title of my lesson this morning is the Christmas story. I want to make sure this is working 
I'm not sure it's even on, John. There we go. It's on now. Okay. So anyway, the, 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 the Christmas story. And, and when you think of the Christmas story, you, you think of uh, the different people that play or make up the parts of the Christmas story. Of course, there's Mary. And I, I, don't, know, I don't know if you ever th- thought about it this way. If you think about, well, how do I relate or who do I relate to in the Christmas story? Do I relate to Mary and, and how she was? Or do I relate to Joseph? Well, I don't, I don't really know too much about Joseph, so I'm not sure I relate to Joseph. Do you relate to the, to the Magi, to the Magi that, uh, that came, the, the, you know, the wise men? Or do you relate to the shepherds? Well, maybe not the shepherds. They were a little fearful. I don't want to relate to the shepherds or anything like that. Or maybe it's this guy up here, King Herod. And, and many of us are looking at it like, I don't want to relate to King Herod. Because you know the story. You know the Christmas story. But I contend to you this morning that maybe, just maybe, in my life and maybe your life, maybe we relate just a little more to King Herod than we think. Maybe we're just a little more like King Herod than we think. And we're going to explore this just for a little bit here this morning. King Herod was a Heck of a guy, and I'm going to just chat about him uh, here for just a few minutes. The King Herod was a pretty, pretty amazing guy. He was uh, the client king of Judah, and what that means is Rome made him king of Judah. But this made the Jewish people in Israel pretty angry because King Herod wasn't Jewish, and so that really ticked them off. But he was king during the time of the birth of Jesus, and, and, and if you know anything about King Herod, he was an extremely talented man, uh, very politically astute, uh, very, very ambitious, extremely ambitious, and he was known in his day and age as King Herod the Builder. He rebuilt the Jewish temple. He uh, Rebuilt, uh, or he built port cities. He did a masterful job of building the port cities, and he did an incredible job. Even today, you can still see some of the remnants of the aqueducts that he built way back many, many, many years ago. And so he was an amazing man of many talents. And, uh, and, and in some ways, though, these talents are his ambition. The ambition that King Herod had was really what got the best of him in the end. He was very ambitious, overly ambitious. And before I get into the biblical side of this, I want to just take a a stroll down uh, the depths of history of King Herod because I really do believe that the more we know about King Herod, the easier it is to understand God's word that we read in Matthew. And that we're going to read here this just a little bit this morning. If any of you ever took uh, Roman history in college or European history in college, you might have had an opportunity to study out uh, Roman history. And if you did, you might have studied out uh, Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar, of course, was assassinated by who? Who was he assassinated by? Well, he was assassinated by the two Brutus boys uh, and Gaius. And uh, he was stabbed how many times? Who remembers? A bunch. Great. A bunch. Okay, we'll just leave it at a bunch. It was actually 23, but there you go. A bunch. A bunch. And when he died, when he died, his nephew, oh, let's go back here just a second. His nephew, uh, Octavius, as you see down here, who eventually becomes uh, Caesar Augustus, uh, and Octavius's friend, Mark Anthony, uh, make a pact that they are going to avenge Julius Caesar. 
And so they go after these guys that killed Julius Caesar. And in doing so, they build up quite a backing for each of them. Uh, and they do an amazing job of killing and, and mayhem and all that different stuff. And in the process, all these people start following Mark Antony and all these people start following Octavius. And so, in a sense, this kind of comes to a head because there's only so much room in Rome for the power of one man. And these two guys were building up a whole lot of power and a lot of following. And they wanted to avenge and destroy all those who did what they did to Julius Caesar. And so when Herod comes onto the story, and this is where Herod comes into the story, Herod and Judah, who Herod led and was king of, he befriended Mark Antony and his wife, who was, who was Mark Antony's wife? Who? Who? Are you serious? He said, Tara, that's terrible. I can't go any further on this one, people. It's Antony, not Anthony, okay? Get the name right. It's Antony. Mark Antony. Cleopatra. Cleopatra is pretty well known. Everybody except that guy over there knew who it was. <laughs> now I'm totally discombobulated. Great. <laughs> and so Herod backs Mark Antony and his wife Cleopatra. And in doing so, uh, and, and really this is kind of bugging the Roman citizens because the Roman citizens hated Cleopatra. Why? Because they were afraid that Cleopatra was going to try and build unity between Rome and Egypt and eventually become queen of both of these countries. And so they had some major misgivings when it came to this whole setup. And through all this, King Herod continued to host parties and lavish gifts on them and support them in the rebellion that they were doing. But over time, Mark and Octavius, more and more famous, the civil war between the two men came to a head and Herod ultimately bet on the wrong guy because Mark and his legions were almost immediately defeated by Octavius and his legions. And so Mark Antony and Cleopatra hightailed it back to Alexandria. And within a very short period of time, Julius Caesar, our, our Julius Caesar's nephew Octavius becomes the first original Caesar, Augustus. And so that's just a little history right there, the very first Caesar. And so Herod realizes that he backed the wrong guy. He went behind the wrong guy. So he, he has one of three options. He either kills himself or he runs, but they will find him ultimately. Eventually they'll find him. Or he hunkers down in hopes that they'll never find him. But here's what's amazing about King Herod and his political astuteness because you got to remember he was an extremely ambitious man. He was extremely politically astute and he was so concerned about building his legacy. And so he turns out to do this amazing, unbelievably smart thing. He gets on a boat and he heads to the island of Rhodes where he knew 
Octavius, a.k.a. Caesar Augustus, would be. And so he knocks on the door and he asks to speak to the emperor of the Roman Empire, the most powerful man in the world. And, and that's not just something you do. It's not commonplace. But he does it. And imagine as he walks in, everybody's looking at him wondering, why is this guy here? Why would this guy come here in front of Caesar Augustus, in front of Octavius? Why is this guy who supported the enemy of our, our king, our Caesar, and why would he come and stand before him? Well, imagine everybody looking at him, wondering this. Imagine him walking in, standing before Caesar. And the amazing thing is, is that Herod stands there. He looks at Caesar in the face and he says, As you know, as you know, I was a loyal friend to your enemy, Mark Antony. And as you know, I was a loyal supporter of his from the beginning, through the Civil War and all the way to the very end. So what you know about me is that when I pledge my loyalty to someone, I am loyal to them to the end. Oh, great Caesar, I pledge my loyalty to you. And Caesar, Augustus, is so amazed by this, And so impressed by this, that not only does he not take away his initial kingdom of Judah, but he goes so far as to give him Samaria and Jericho and Gaza as well. And so that's King Herod. Super bright, politically astute, and amazingly, extremely ambitious. But the one thing that got King Herod in trouble was that he was so committed to his own control. And he was so committed to his own legacy that he just made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And it's so much so that he changed his will a number of times, a number of different times over his lifetime. And he had ten wives, and he would change which son would be king every so often. So every few years, he would say, okay, you, my son, are going to be king. And then after a few years, he'd look at that son and say, no, that son's not really the guy to be the king. So he'd have him executed. And then he'd put another son in place. And then he'd have him executed. Probably by the time he got to the fifth or sixth son, that son was like, wait, I don't want to be king, Dad. I'm good at this point. Just pick somebody else. So he kept doing that and kept doing that. And he was so committed to controlling and growing his kingdom. And what he wanted was for someone from his line to always be on the throne. That he would kill indiscriminately anybody who got in his way. He was an angry, oppressive king. His wives, his sons... Many of the rabbis in Jerusalem, so much so that none of the people wanted to come before King Herod. And so when you get to the biblical narrative of Jesus, when you get to the biblical narrative of Jesus, King Herod is now 70 years old. And he's very sick. He has a very heinous, terminally ill kidney disease. That is causing him much, much pain. But he's trying so much to grow his power and to ensure that the next generation continues his legacy. 
And then he gets this most disturbing of news. Five miles away, five miles south of him, there's a new king. And this new king is just now learning to walk. And so here is how Matthew introduces the story. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, now imagine how this is landing on the ears of King Herod, but even more so on the ears of those in Judah. Where is he who has been born Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. Shh, shh. We saw his star. Shh. They're probably saying, shh, don't say it too loud. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, knowing the background a little bit better, knowing the background of King Herod, and if you didn't know the background, it helps us to understand a little bit more of why King Herod was so disturbed, but even more so, why Jerusalem was disturbed. Because you think when you read that, why would Jerusalem be disturbed about this king? Because Herod was a mean, angry man who would do anything he could do to keep people from taking his throne. And so when this other king was brought to the forefront, people were like, don't tell King Herod. Don't say a word. Just keep it to yourself. And especially now that he's older and he's sick and his time is short and he's thinking about nothing else but the plans he's making, his legacy, his future, his control, his kingdom is at a risk. And they're coming and asking, where's this king of the Jews? And King Herod's like, what are you talking about? And everybody in Jerusalem's like, don't say it anymore. And we go on. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And you got to remember, going before King Herod wasn't no status rise, rise of status. If you went before King Herod, it often meant death. And so he assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquires of them where the Messiah was to be born. Well, why don't you know that, King Herod? You're king of the Jews. That doesn't make any sense. You should know this. That doesn't make any sense at all. He goes on in verse 5, and he says, In Bethlehem of Judea, Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, this is the worst news possible. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. He says, I want to talk to those guys. And found out, and found out from them what time the star had appeared. We go on, it says, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found it, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, 
The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And going into the house, they saw the child. And going into the house, I'm sorry, let me go back here just a second. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They worshipped him. They worshipped Jesus. You know, this word worship, for many in the religious world, means to come and sing hymns to God, sing songs to God. But this word worship is for most of us, and here I hope, the concept and the understanding of recognizing that you're in the presence of someone who's amazing and powerful. And here is this little baby who three powerful men travel afar to go and see. And when they come before him, they get on their knees and they bow before him. Because that's who Jesus is. Worthy of our worship. Now right now, as we say that, many of us are like, yeah, I know that. But do we live like that? Do we live in the same sense, or do we just take it, say, oh, I've read this a hundred times. I've heard this story. They came and they worshiped God. Oh, that's so cute. They bowed before the baby Jesus. No, they bowed. They bowed. They fell prostrate before him. Their hearts, their minds, all that they were, all who they were, fell before King Jesus, the King of the Jews. They fell down and they worshipped him. It's recognizing that you're in the presence of someone who should cause you awe. And five miles away, just five miles away, we see King Herod. Have you seen those guys? Have you seen Jesus? Has anybody seen these people? Has anybody seen the wise men? Does anybody know where Jesus is? Why? Why? Because King Herod is so concerned about controlling things. His whole life is about preserving and protecting and controlling, preserving, protecting, controlling, preserving, protecting, and controlling. That's what his whole life is about. And so with a fist a fist clenched high, racked with pain because of his kidney disease, he's not about to bow down before the baby Jesus. He's not about to worship anyone. And this is why, in some ways, I say maybe there's just a little bit of Herod in each of us. Because for many, I'm sure... They don't mind leveraging God in the religious world if it's going to help build up their kingdom. But the idea of writing a blank check to him and asking him to take over my life, saying the answer is yes before you even know what the question is. That's more than just showing up on Sunday every week, isn't it? 
That's more than just saying and professing I'm a Christian. It's more than just going once a week or maybe every so often if you feel like it, if there's nothing else going on, if you've got nothing better going on that morning. Because for many in the religious world, church has become more of a noun than a verb. Because we've heard the story time and time again. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod, sorry. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. The plot thickens even deeper right here. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, became furious. When Herod was furious, people suffered. People died. He spent his whole life trying to control the outcomes of things. No matter what happened, he tried to figure out how to control the outcome of his life. Even when he thought he was going to be killed by Caesar Augustus Octavius, he found a way to control the outcome of that situation, didn't he? Because that's who he was. You know, I was with Bobby Rodriguez this week, as he alluded to, and we were talking about the amazement of being a part of the kingdom of God and knowing who God is and being able to know who Jesus is in our life and the difference between somebody who doesn't have that and somebody who does is understanding that in our lives things happen. And when things happen, good, bad, or indifferent, it's because we believe and trust that God's going to take care of us no matter what the situation. If somebody dies, yeah, that's a bummer. Somebody gets sick, we understand that's a terrible thing. But we know God is in control because when you don't have a relationship with Jesus and with God and you don't know who he is, then you freak out and you blow a gasket and you can't handle it. But we as Christians should be able to handle it. Because it's a game changer for us. Because we bow down and we worship Jesus. Herod wants to control everything. Herod wants to control all the things. The question is, how much do we want to control? Herod was outsmarted by a little baby and two Jewish parents. He decided no matter what happened, he would not be thwarted, though. And certainly not by some baby king. So he gives these orders. Orders that I could never imagine ever, ever giving much less having to be somebody who had to follow and act out these orders. And unless you know the story of King Herod, and unless you understand the story of King Herod, knowing what this is about, knowing who King Herod is, it doesn't make any sense. Why would somebody do this? But now we know the backstory of King Herod. We understand who he is. And in Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was outwitted by the wise men, became furious. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, hold on, let's back up a second. Listen to this. Listen to what I'm about to say. In Bethlehem, in all that region, 
we're, we're, we're who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. In other words, Herod gave the order to kill all the young boys two years of age or younger. And so they did. One horrible morning, one horrible afternoon, one horrible evening, the soldiers rolled into the little town of Bethlehem and they went to every house and farm and pulled out every little boy, little boy who was under the age of two. And they killed that little boy in front of their families. And if the family got in the way, they killed the family as well. Mary had to live with the knowledge of knowing that this very thing happened. I couldn't imagine being Mary knowing that this situation happened in this time and place and all these things, this crazy stuff that took place. But this one thing right there and having to live with knowing that her baby boy could have been the cause of all these boys being killed. Not long after, maybe within that same year, Herod died a painful death from kidney disease. So painful was this death that he tried to commit suicide a number of times, and he failed. And just before he died, Herod gave this order. I want you to round up all the influential, all the wealthy, all the distinguished men, and I want you to put them in jail. And the hour that I die, I want you to execute every last one of these men. So that somebody will be mourning when I die. Because Herod knew that the moment he died, there would be the biggest party ever thrown in Judea. Continue the story in verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Get up! Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And in this little twist of history, Herod, known as Herod the Great, amazing things that Herod did, all the different stuff that he accomplished, became a footnote in the story of Jesus, the toddler. Could you imagine? Could you imagine trying to explain that? To Herod. Herod, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news for you. The good is 2,000 years from now, people will be telling a story about you. And all over the world, in languages and places that you can't even imagine exist, people will gather in rows and circles, and they're going to read about you. And he might be answering, well, that's fantastic. That's good news. That's great to hear. Yes, well, there's bad news too, Herod. You are simply just a B character. You're simply just a sidebar. You're simply just a footnote in the story of this toddler who became a king, who became the savior of the world. And people won't talk about what you built, about the seaports, about the aqueducts. You won't be known in most circles as Herod the Builder but as Herod the butcher. Eighty years later, eighty years later, 
Long after Jesus has left the earth to be with God, Caesar is gone, Tiberius is gone, Nero is gone, the temple is destroyed. Eighty years later, John the Apostle, who took Mary from the foot of the cross when Jesus said, Behold, your mother, behold, your son. And he took Mary in to be his mom, and he lived in the same place with Mary, and he probably heard the narrative of the birth of Jesus time and time again, and I'm sure he asked Mary time and time again, Mary, what was it like to have Jesus as a baby boy, as a little baby? And what was it like to think about knowing those things, like all these babies were killed, and what was it like to experience this, and all these things that that John heard about, all the things that John experienced, and John seeing every miracle that Jesus ever did. John, who watched Jesus do all the things that he had ever done. John, who watched Jesus die. John, who peered into the tomb, the empty tomb. Looking back, 80 years later, on all this narrative that he had heard firsthand, John sits down and decides to reflect and write down what he's heard. And because of this, he writes for us something more important than anything that we could ever, ever read. And it's right here in John chapter 1, verse 4. In him, in him was past tense. In him was life, and the life was, past tense, the light of all mankind. It wasn't just for the Jews. It wasn't just for a group of people who God raised up and asked to show who he was to other people. It wasn't just for them. It was for all mankind. It was for everybody in this room. It was for everybody outside of this room. It was for all of us who came here today. Some of you don't know who Jesus is. Some of you don't have a relationship with God. Some of us do, and some of us need to work and grow our relationship with God. It's for all mankind, for every one of us in this room, outside of this room. Everybody who the eye can see that we can reach, that we can talk to, that we can share with, that we can encourage to know who God is. In him was life. The life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. Remember at this time, John had been exiled to Patmos. All of his friends are gone. The temple is no longer. Things just aren't the way they were. Life is challenging for John, and all these things that he knew and all the things that John loved had come crumbling down around him. And still, John has the presence of mind to be able to write something like this. The light shines in the darkness. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. And the darkness will not overcome it. It will not be swallowed up. It will not be blown out. It will shine from here until the end of days. The light will never 
shine. And so that brings us to us. Because we asked a question at the beginning. What have I done this year for God and his kingdom? What will our story be in relationship to the light of the world? And by our story, I mean Juan's story and Janelle's story. And Sherry's story. And my story. What will your story be in relation to the light of the world? Will it be a story of resistance? Like Herod? Five miles away. Five miles away was baby Jesus. And he refused to bow down. Or will it be one of worship? same way the wise men did. Will it be one of resistance or will it be one of resistance? Will our story be like that of Herod? Trying to build your own kingdom. Trying to get up the rungs of the ladder. Trying to do as much as you can. Oh, I've got to be here and I've got to do this. And I'm at the expense of my family, at the expense of my relationship with God. What is it going to be? Is it going to be like Herod? Trying to build up your own kingdom instead of accepting an invite to the kingdom of God. So focused on ambition that we forget about our first focus. Or that you clung as tightly as you could to all the things you will eventually have to give away. Or will it be a story of my way or his way? A story of my will or his will. And one day, one day, all of us will one day be there. In a casket, gone, with others standing around talking about who we were to them. What will the stories be that they share? Will they share the God stories of your life? The ones that took you closer to God? And the one that took others closer to God? Or not so much those stories? And here's... The big question that we have to ask ourselves, because no matter whether you've given your life to Christ here today or not, whether you just walked in off the street, whether somebody invited you, whether you're visiting with us for the first time, or whether you claim to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, either way, this question begs the answer. It has to be answered, because in order for us to want to understand what it means to follow Christ. We've got to answer this question, and not just today, not just one time, not just if you're sitting on the front row, the back row, or in the middle, whether you walked in or crawled in, no matter what your situation is. You've got to ask this question. What story do you want to have told about you?
Now we take the communion today. We heard the story of Herod the Great. Herod the angry, Herod the ambitious for himself, Herod the controlling, Herod the desiring to right his own ship, Herod to do what he wants to do, Herod who five miles away from baby Jesus refused to get on a horse and ride five miles. What are we willing to do for God? How are we willing to live for Jesus? What are we willing to do so that the story that is written about us is one that says, I followed Christ. I gave my life to Christ. I wasn't perfect, but nothing got in my way. Let's take the Lord's Supper. Father, we praise your name and pray to you this morning. We thank you for this time to worship you. And God, as we venture into this time of year, this season, tis the season. Every day is tis the season for Christians. Every day is a day to follow you. Every day is a day to give our lives to you. Every day is a day to wake up, as I've heard some of the brothers share, to wake up and say, how am I going to live for you today? God, how am I going to be used by you today? God, what will you do through my life today? Father, I pray that we will be men and women who when we take this Lord's Supper, if we are in the place of not knowing you, that we will desire to come and follow you, that we will desire to figure out what it means to give our lives to you. And if we have given our lives to you, God, that we won't be men and women who just come once a week and just kind of just play church but that we will be men and women to be reckoned with because we follow you. We profess you as Christians. We give our lives to you every day. God, I pray that we won't let five miles ever get in the way of us and that we will remember who we are and whose we are, what we've been taken out of. We thank you for this bread and this juice. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.